This is episode 93 with my mum, Wendy Robinson. G'day legends and welcome to Your Life of Impact, where we connect with world-class athletes and coaches, health experts and enthusiasts, inspiring entrepreneurs and community leaders, all to teach you how to tap into your inner excellence. I'm your host, Brett Robbo, and I'm extremely grateful you're joining us today on Your Impactful Journey. Okay, this is an episode that is a bit different to the usual Your Life of Impact podcast episodes. This is me interviewing my mum, my courageous, strong, loving, caring mother who's endured one of the worst tragedies and adversities you could think of with her parents, my grandparents, being murdered in their own home. Most of you listeners would be aware of this horrific adversity as you've heard me speak about it in a few of the episodes and on other podcasts that I've been interviewed on. And in fact, it's a big part of the reason that this podcast was created in the first place because of my mission and drive and purpose to enhance and optimize my grandparents' legacy. In this chat with mum, We spend the first 20 minutes discussing what her simple country life was like growing up with her two amazing parents. I really wanted to set the scene for all of you to hear how close mum was with her parents and how much time they did spend together over her whole lifetime and how much positive influence and guidance they provided for her. And I tell you what, mum's memory is impressive. I've always known that, but it's so clear in this chat how grateful she is for her whole life and her family connection. Now, this episode was actually recorded in June 2017 in a hotel room in Sydney on one of the many occasions that we were together for yet another court hearing at the Supreme Court in Sydney. So why have I been sitting on this episode for so long? Well, a couple of reasons. At the time of the recording of this chat between mum and I, we thought the court case would be over with very shortly. It had already been two and a half years since the killings and there seemed to be some progress and potential closure. But no, we were wrong. And the other main reason is because we had strict instructions from our barristers and legal team not to do any media or release this podcast or anything like it because it could allow the defence team to argue that the judge's decision was swayed by the media. We had to be very careful not to jeopardise that. So I've been sitting on this podcast for almost 18 months and we're now legally allowed to release it because just a couple of weeks ago, which is almost four years after the tragedy, the courts have finally made a decision on the case that's been dragging on which is the forfeiture case, which is all about us fighting for him, the killer, not to gain anything financially from the killings, from the murders. The results of this forfeiture case aren't great. We've only just received the results, to be honest, and we're still processing it properly in our minds. And there's also a lot of other things that have happened since the recording of this episode, almost 18 months ago. 
And mum and I, for that reason, would like to do a part two after this. But I need to hear from you listeners that you actually want a part two. Now, don't feel weird about wanting to hear more about a story and a case that is so unbelievably deep and traumatic. The more we speak about it, the higher the chances are that mums fight for law changes, which we speak about in this episode, the more chance that that will happen. And people in the future won't have to experience being dragged under a bus time after time after time for years after the worst adversity they suffer. Because the unfortunate reality is that it will happen to others. But they shouldn't have to experience this post-traumatic stress on top of everything else. But even on the domestic violence side of things that you'll hear mum passionately speak about, by doing a part two and keeping this conversation going and helping mum, helping support mum with her purpose and drive to be a voice in this space will be extremely impactful. So please reach out either via private Facebook or Instagram messages if you follow us on social media or if you're in our closed Facebook group for the podcast community, you can share your thoughts in there or jump onto the website at yourlifeofimpact.com and you'll see links to contact me directly there. And please let me know if you want to hear more about this topic. And speaking of support, you'll hear mum talk about a petition that she started and needs to get signatures on to help change the laws. So you'll hear us talk about that in this chat and we'd be extremely grateful for your support on this. And you can find the petition at change.org. So go on to change.org and search Wendy Robinson or check the show notes to this episode for the exact link. So I'll create a hyperlink that you can click on and it will take you straight there. Also, on the day of this release of this podcast, the Australian TV program called A Current Affair are releasing this story on their program. So if you'd like to watch the story, then I'm pretty sure you'll find it on their website. So try Googling A Current Affair Wendy Robinson. Now, let me tell you this, when A Current Affair contacted mum and wanted to do the story, and this was 18 months ago, by the way, they've been following it for a long time. When mum told me about it, I said, no way, mum. I don't trust that TV programs care about you, care about us, or care about the Cobar and wider community that have been affected by this. They just want ratings. But mum spoke to me about it and assured me that the ladies she'd been speaking with were very genuine and seemed to care. A lot, actually. So I said, well, mum, let's get to know them. And I can tell you now that Madeline and Natalie, the producers, and Dimity, the reporter, have been nothing but genuine, caring, authentic human souls. Mum and I have got to know them well over the past 18 months as they've followed all the court proceedings and other things happening. And I couldn't be more grateful that it's these people who are airing the first TV stories about our tragedy. And at the time of this recording, of me recording this intro, I haven't actually seen the story that they've created, not even one snippet of it, because I wanted to release this episode at the same time but I'm honestly confident they'll do a great job. And the reason why we went ahead with this is because of mum's newfound purpose to be a voice against domestic violence and to get these terrible laws changed. And we believe this will enhance that aspect of what has kept mum strong through all of this. 
It's what's given her strength to look at what she can control and what allows her to move forward. And it's what has stopped her from falling into victim mentality too often. Now, I could talk for hours about all of this, which is why I'd like to hear from you if you want to hear more. But for now, let's hear from the woman in my life who is an inspirational role model, who in the deepest of sorrows has found strength and courage to fight for a cause that will never change her situation and adversity, but is doing it for the rest of society and to prevent future challenges. I'm extremely grateful and immensely proud to bring you my mum, Wendy Robbo. Mum, welcome to Your Life of Impact. How fun is this? That's very exciting, Brett. (laughs) It's all very new to me and it's very exciting. Have you ever been on a podcast before? I have never been on a podcast before. (laughs) I've listened to a few podcasts. Now, we're just having a little chat beforehand and you told me you're nervous about talking to me. Why is that? Why am I nervous? Yeah. Because you make me nervous. Are you having a chat? What are you nervous about? Yeah, we're mother and son that usually have quite a few good chats, Brett, but to shove a microphone in my hand creates a whole different feeling. Okay. Just pretend the mic's not there. Okay. (laughs) I'm extremely grateful to have you on the podcast, Mum, and you just said it then, but we have an amazing relationship and we always have my whole life. And obviously over the last few years, it's just become closer and stronger. And today is very different to all the interviews that I've done before by by talking to my mum. And when I uh, created this podcast, I wasn't thinking, not to take away from your amazing life, but I wasn't thinking that you'd be someone that I would interview on the podcast. So thank you for agreeing to it. Even though you say I've shoved this microphone in your hand, (laughs) I didn't force you for this. And I even gave you to the last minute you could uh, pull out of this chat with your son. Son, you know, I'm always happy to help whatever it is you do in life I support. (laughs) All right, let's take it right back. You were born in Ningen, far western New South Wales. On the Bogan. On the Bogan River. How old were your parents when they had you? 16 and 19. 16 and 19. Mm. So your mum was 16, Brumo was 16, your, your dad was 19. Was it a, did they get married? Was it a bit of a shotgun wedding before they had you? It was a shotgun wedding. They actually first dated when mum was 14. And their first date was on the Bogan, down at the Weir. They met for a picnic. And on that picnic, Dad, who is your grinder, carved a love letter into a tree, into the bark of the tree. And it had, Ian loves Marg, Margaret. That's when they were very young. Anyways, time went on and they dated a bit more and went to the movies and all the rest of it. They got married because, as Dad used to say, I came along three years premature. (laughs) (laughs) Three years premature. (laughs) Yes. Anyway, they were married on the 29th of September 1961 at the Methodist Church in Ningen. And as horrible as it sounds, they used to tell me the story that people actually took bets that their marriage would not work. Right, I didn't know that. That is true, yeah. Some people said they'd give it two years. Some people gave it less. Some people gave it a little bit more. Well, lucky they weren't putting money on for each year because 53 years later, still happily married. <laughs> yes, 53 years later, they were still happily married. 
and still very romantic. Very romantic, and we'll get to that point. They also had a son seven years later after you. You had a younger brother. Yes, my brother was born seven years after me in August 1968. And you finished high school in Ningen and moved to Dubbo for yeah. a short period. Yeah, I finished high school in Ningen at the end of 1977. And at the start of 1978, I moved to Dubbo and a girlfriend of mine and myself, we shared a flat in Dubbo and we went to secretarial school. Secretarial school. And then you moved back to Ningen after that period in Dubbo uh, where Brummar and Grindar were living. So actually, let's just, before we move on, we're going to be referring to my grandparents and your parents as Brummar and Grindar. How did those names come about? Why does everyone that know Margaret and Ian know them as Brimmar and Grindar also? Because when we had our firstborn, first son, Jay, as he was starting to talk, we tried to teach him to say Grandma and Grandad for my parents. And he came up with Grindar and Brimmar. That was his effort of saying Grandma and Grandad, and it stuck. And as time went on, it got to Grindy and Brimmy and Brimmy Brim and Grindy Grin and yeah, <laughs> but they're yeah, you kids and their other grandchildren and lots of children in Kabar. Yeah, a lot of my mates know them as Brimmer yeah, and Grinda. <laughs> they just commonly call them Brimmer and Grinda. And then, so you moved back to Ningen where Brimmer and Grinda were living. And how old were you when you started dating Dad? I'm thinking sixteen. Sixteen. Yeah. Dad's just sitting over in the corner here, shaking his head. Dad, Dad can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Not that it matters too much. I just thought I'd throw that in there. You and Dad started dating pretty young too. I could have been fifteen, turning sixteen. Ah, right. But because I'm, I'm just trying to think, if your father's two years older than me, and I vaguely remember him turning eighteen, that could have been when. We're still chasing each other. I don't know. <laughs> there would have been a lot of chases around the streets of Ningen. I can imagine a population of what two and a half thousand people. It would have been uh, hard to find each other <laughs> in such busy streets. It was because there's only a few of us in town that were popular. <laughs> <laughs> so you were running from him, not to him. <laughs> yeah, it was actually. He did the chasing. <laughs> I've seen a lot of pics of you and Dad back in the day and also of Brimmar and Grindar back in the day. You guys were stunners. Yeah, we were pretty hot in our time. <laughs> we were from the popular crowd in the school. We were pretty cool. <laughs> I could imagine. Now, you and Dad have three kids. I'm the middle one at age 31. My older brother, Jay, who you mentioned before, he's two years older and living in Canada. Uh, younger sister, Demi, who's five years younger than me. Who's your favourite? <laughs> Just jokes. Well, actually, you, you don't know have what, to Brie? tell my siblings on here that I'm the favourite. That's fine. It depends on the moment. <laughs> you and Dad actually had another child, and I would have had an older sister. That's correct. Yeah, her name is was Relie. She was born in March '79, and she was a stillbirth. I was 36 and a half weeks pregnant. When I went into labour, and at the time they thought I was going to be giving birth to a little baby early than the due date, and it was in hospital they realised that there was no heartbeat. I'd nearly gone full term. And yes, we lost our firstborn to stillbirth, and she was a girl. Can't imagine how emotional that would have been for both of you. It was, and quite confusing. And back in those days too... When I gave birth, she was taken away straight away. We weren't even allowed to see her. That was just not allowed. 
and we didn't even get any say in organising a little funeral for her. That was all organised for us. In this day and age, stillbirth is treated quite differently. They let the mother and the father nurse the child to take a glimpse of the child, to nurture that child and say goodbye to that child. Your father and I didn't get that opportunity, Brett. She was just taken, swept out away from us and I was never allowed to see her and neither was your father. And just expected to get on with life. And expected to get on with life. No counselling, not really a proper grieving process. Sent home from hospital, get on with your life. And were Brumar and Grinda around at that time? to help you through those emotional turmoils? Yes, they were. Yes, I remember one night in hospital, I think it was the second night up there, I couldn't sleep and Brimar sat with me all night and we just talked and held each other's hand and she'd doze and I'd doze and we'd talk and talk and talk again and she helped me get through the the first little bit of it. Mum, tell us a little bit more about Brumar and Grindar and your amazing parents because you've lived in the same town as them either in Cobar or Ningen pretty much your whole life there's been a little period where you weren't in the same town but pretty much the same town tell us a little bit about your growing up with them and, and even in adulthood how close they were to you well growing up in the 60s and 70s in a small community of Ningen mum and dad were married very young and dad when I was first born dad was still finishing his leaving certificate at school and because it was taboo in the 60s to have a child out of wedlock and to be so young, mum was not allowed to return to school. So she actually did her leaving certificate by correspondence. It was just a no-no with the Department of Education and the local school. So mum used to pack dad's lunch and send him off to school. And I used to love mum and dad telling that story, especially dad, because he would open his lunchbox at school and mum would have popped a little love letter in there and that happened consistently. And actually, even in dad's first job at Ningen Motors, he was selling spare parts at Ningen Motors to help make ends meet. He would open his morning tea box there or his lunchbox there and mum would pop a little love letter in. So... My growing up time with mum and dad in Ningen was special. I thought I was a very lucky girl. As time went on, mum and dad built a house. They saved £600 and built a house. And it's only in recent months I was cleaning out sections of their filing cabinet and I actually found their first housing loan of £1,300 so that they could build their own house and put the garden and the fences up and everything. I had my own bedroom. I used to think that we were the rich ones in the street, which as time goes on I learned that we weren't. We were pretty average. But because we had this new house, I thought we were rich. And my memories with mum and dad are so much time with mum and dad, fishing and walking. And as the years went on, we were skiing, water skiing. Water skiing became a big favoured sport of dad's, which became our sport. My uncles actually instigated it. Holidays, every year we'd go on a holiday, even the years that mum and dad couldn't afford a holiday. We'd go to grandma's because throughout her time, her school teaching years, she always lived somewhere near the beach. So that was the holiday we had when mum and dad couldn't afford a holiday. Education was very important to mum and dad. And I can remember so many hours of them helping me do projects and little things like mum would be doing the ironing and she'd say spell Constantinople 
spell whoop whoop. Spell, <laughs> spell dog. Spell. I got spelling words thrown at me all the time, which was instilled in me. And to this day, I cannot stand spelling mistakes. And I think it was comes from mum. Dad was a bit of a silly bugger. He was the humorous one in the family, while mum was the serious one. Both were very loving. I used to love dad's humour, and he was a stirrer. He'd often stir mum, stir me. Obviously, massive influences in your life growing up as a kid, but also then once you moved back from the big smoke of Dubbo and you came back to Ningen and living and working in the same town as them and then they've had a lot of businesses over the years and I believe you've worked in some of their businesses and also they helped you and Dad get into your first business in the service station. Yes. Well, for a lot of years Dad floated between different jobs and he also tried his own businesses. He had a a water truck carting water for new roads there for a while and in the tough times he had to take that truck to the Blue Mountains area to help build the new roads there. But Mum... From a very young age, up until 1979, worked at the Ningen Hospital. They left Cobar in 1979 because they wanted to spread their wings, have a go at business, and they had to put the Golden Fleece in Cobar. It broke Mum's heart to leave Ningen. The story goes that she cried all the way to Cobar every kilometre. She shed a tear, but in no time they settled into Cobar and stayed there for 35 years. But in the meantime, 12 months later, things weren't going well in Ningen. Ningen had a bit of a downturn in the in the eight, early 80s. So they invited Ross and I to move to Cobar and Ross worked for them on the driveway of the Golden Fleece and I worked for them in the kitchen. Ross is my dad, by the way. Ross is your dad, yes. Or Rossi. And... Oh, and then in 1981, the Ningen Golden Fleece came up for sale, unbeknownst to us, because Mum and Dad had their own Golden Fleece and talked to the rep quite regularly. It was mentioned in conversation that the Ningen Golden Fleece came up and the next thing we know, we're heading off to Ningen to run the Ningen Golden Fleece. And you mentioned earlier that Mum and Dad helped us get into business. Well, they only really physically helped us, not financially helped us. And although it was quite exciting at the time and we had some good times doing it and some terrible times doing it because we went in there totally blind. I was only 19 and your father was 22, both very young to be going into business. Um, We now look back on it and think, that it wasn't such a good idea at the time. It seemed like a good idea at the time, but it wasn't such a good idea at the time. Great learning curve, though. It was a great learning <laughs> curve. And we don't regret it. We certainly don't regret it. It was an experience in our life. And then, obviously, there's a lot more in between these chapters, but you worked in their, so in Brimbar and Grindar's business for how many years? The current one in Cobar. The current one in Cobar? 15 years. Mum started a business called Cobar Paper Chase and it was a secretarial business and labour hire company and a bookkeeping business. And in she started that in 1996 and in 1999 I joined her, October 1999. In 2005 she went across to the stationery shop which was directly across the road to get some paper and she came back and she said, I'm going to buy that business because... They won't get the paper in I want. And I just laughed and I went away somewhere for the week on a little holiday and when I came back, Mum said, I've bought the stationery shop across the road. I said, you're kidding. And she said, well, I told them if they're not going to get the paper in I want, I'm going to buy the shop and get 
get the paper in I want. And that is a true story. What a great way to solve your own problems. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that was just one of the businesses they had. They had, and we don't have to go into it, but I can ones that I can remember is the school bus run, the also the buses that take the took the miners out to the mine. Uh, they had rental car businesses. What else am I missing? That the town tours on the bus. The as town well, tours. Did. Service station twice. <sighs> I think that's about it, Brett, mm. going very, through the years. Very entrepreneurial, so they obviously they were. Uh, and, and you were a big part of a lot of their entrepreneurial journeys. Yeah. And in their time, they actually introduced a few new things to Cobar because they could see potential. When they were in the service station, they used to sell and hire trailers because you couldn't buy a trailer in town, for instance. Then a little time down the track, they thought, hang on, we've got bosses flying into the mines quite constantly for meetings. They can't hire a car. We'll start up Hertz Hire Car. So they started up Hertz Hire Car and in no time at all, we end up with Thrifty Budget and a few others because people thought, hang on, Ian Setri's making money here. We'll do the same thing. And the town tours, Dad could see an, an opening there. He did that twice on two different occasions over the years. The first one was just called Cobar Town Tours. The second one was called Experience Cobar because you could see tourists lobbing to the town but they weren't staying because there was nothing to do. So he introduced the town tours. I actually uh, rocked up to town one time and uh, surprised him and jumped on that tour. I was very proud of Grindar and the tour that he created in town on his bus driving everyone around to show them uh, everything that Cobar has to offer. <laughs> yeah, and it was very interesting. I learnt things on that tour after I'd lived there for so many years that I never knew about. Question, how were they when they first became grandparents? Absolutely amazing. First of all, when I rang to tell them they are going to be grandparents, Grinda said, no, I can't be. I'm not old enough yet. I'm still not old enough. <laughs> but when he f- did become a grandfather, he was very excited. How old was he when he became a grandfather? Or how old was Brimmar actually? He how was 40, was turning 41, I think. So Brimmar would have been three years younger. And pretty young grandparents. Pretty young grandparents. <laughs> and mum rang to tell him that there was he has a grandson and his words were, you bloody beauty. <laughs> <laughs> they used to look after us kids quite a lot, didn't they? And we actually lived with them for a short period of time in We in did. Cobar. Because when we left Ningham the second time and moved to Cobar the second time, housing was scarce, so we moved in with them. Your father and I and kids and all moved in for a period of time. I have lots of vivid memories with them from a young age at sport, camping, holidays. Then as we got older, times felt even more regular, even though once we moved away from home, but it just felt like the the connection grew stronger with them and Heaps of awesome memories hanging out with them. They honestly didn't feel like my grandparents because we could party together. We could philosophise together. I was training with them. I did the city to surf uh, here in Sydney, a 14-kilometre run with them one time. Grindar would contact me about gym programs in, in his later years and things like that. And, yeah, lots of fun times at family occasions. Grindar was obviously my first athletics coach and we did some mammoth drives together around the country. We'd drive from Cobar to Adelaide, Cobar to Brisbane, often Cobar to Sydney, Cobar to Tasmania. We had a lot of good times and a lot of good chats driving around the countryside together. They both obviously taught me a lot about 
Well, they taught me what love and respect is through their actions. You know, they're happily married for 53 years and always cuddling and kissing and whispering sweet nothings into each other's ears and smiling. And you look at all the photos of them these days and it's hard to find one when they're together if they're not cuddling and, and smiling. And, you know, through their actions, they taught me a, love about, a lot about love and respect. Taught me a lot about entrepreneurship, obviously, because as we've already spoken about, they're very successful business people and just learned a lot through watching them grow and and sell many businesses through through different times. They also taught me a lot about community and they were massive community members in Cobar and taught me a lot about giving back to your community. And you spoke about the reason why they started some of their businesses because they saw that Cobar needed it and they did it for not just themselves but for the Cobar community. And, and I saw a lot that they would do for sporting groups and charities and organisations and just get together and they, they taught me so much about giving back to not just the Cobar community but communities in need in general. And they were massive impactors in the Cobar community. And your grandmother had a little saying. She was very much a giver. They both were. And I, it was instilled in me to give and I'm still a giver but she used to say and I know it's a little bit of a religious saying but she would use this all the time give and you shall receive not only does it give satisfaction in giving too but it makes you a a good person and people will turn around and return the favour to you at some stage and support you when it's needed. And that's what I found with the Cobar community. And it wasn't just with the Cobar community. They, they're well known in Western New South Wales for a, a lot of community involvement. Yes, they are. Mum, to fast forward a few chapters, and as we mentioned, you worked with them in, in their current business in Cobar called Stationary Essentials for, for the last 12 years and 15 years in total before it moved into the stationery shop. You saw them almost every single day of your life. I did. Can you take us back to Wednesday the 3rd of December 2014 at work and then that evening? Wednesday the 3rd of December 2014 was a normal day in Cobar, normal working day. I bounced off to work as I always do, arriving earlier than mum as I always did and she greeted me with the usual, good morning, how are you this morning Mrs Robbo? Good mum, how are you? And the day went on and dad came in. Dad used to frequent the place about 10 o'clock every day because he'd either have jobs to do or come and offer to do a job but he knew the kettle was put on at 10 o'clock so he always had his cup of coffee at 10 o'clock every day and this particular day he came in a bit earlier and he bounced to the door and he said, Hi girls, is there jobs to do today? We said, No, I think we're right today. So he did his little hop and a skip, skip to Malu, we used to call it. And off he went and said, Well, I'm going, I'm going to go to the tip and do my laps early today. By laps, you mean the swimming? Swing laps. He swam 60 laps in the Cobar pool every single day. He did. And on his birthday every year, he did 100 laps. And his goal was to keep doing 100 laps every birthday until he turned 100. <laughs> yeah, anyway, the day was a normal working day and it. Half past five, I said goodbye to mum and I had to walk past her desk area, which was like a counter area, and I stopped at the desk and I said, see you tomorrow, mum, I'm heading out. And she came to the desk and gave me this beautiful big smile that I will never forget and it was a smile that she always carried with her and looking back on photos it was that smile that day was the last time I saw that beautiful smile and she said sleep well and what are you having for dinner and I said I don't know I'll work that out when I go home see you love you she said love you and off I went out the door that 
evening. I went to bed at 10 to 10 and I must have, I think I read two pages of a book and went into a very deep sleep because my doorbell started ringing at 10 o'clock and I woke up thinking I was dreaming. I jumped up and looked out the window and here was the police vehicle out the front. So I actually ran to the front door. My heart was absolutely racing and I ran to the front door, swung the door open and said, please don't tell me it's my children. And the policewoman said, where are your children? And I said, Canada, USA, Perth. And she said, no, it's Ian and Margaret. And I said, what has my brother done? And she took me, stepped me back into my foyer area of the house, closed the door and said, he shot them. And I'm actually shaking as I repeat that because in that split moment, my world just turned upside down. It is hard to describe when you're hit with news like that, what it actually does to you. It actually rips you apart and your body shakes, your brain goes blank, your whole body goes numb and you feel so sick and you cannot comprehend what you've just heard. And as you look around the room, I remember I started pacing the room and holding the back of my head and the room seemed blurry. Just my whole life in that split moment went into this massive blur. And as I approached the policewoman, I I must have thought that perhaps they were in hospital. I don't know. And I said, are they dead? And she said, yes, and put her head down. And I remember just falling to the floor and screaming, not mum and dad, not mum and dad. Please not mum and dad. And from that moment, a lot of that night's a blur, but a lot of it I remember having to, the hardest thing is something like that too, having to ring other family members. And the first job I had to do was get in touch with you, Brett, and your brother Jay and Demi and trying to work out where to start, how to tell you over the phone. I couldn't even comprehend phone numbers at that stage. I could not comprehend Jay's phone number. You, I didn't even know how to get in touch with you. You were in the USA. So I started with Demi's ex-boyfriend, Luca, and hit him with something that was so tough for him. I remember saying to him, Luca, 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 I hate doing this to you, but you've got to get to Demi as far as fast as possible and phone me. Just hold her in your arms and phone me. He said, what's happened, Wendy? What's happened, Wendy? I said, my brother's killed mum and dad. And then I heard Luca groaning and just making this groaning noise. And at the time, I didn't realise Luca was driving. He was actually in the car driving. And then I hung up and said, ring me back when you're with my girl. And then the next task was to phone Jay. And I said, at the time, I could not comprehend what the digits were, although I had to put in front of Jay's phone number to phone overseas. So I was texting him saying, phone home, urgent, phone home, urgent. And he wouldn't phone and it seemed like hours but it was only seconds and minutes that I still couldn't get on to Jay. And then Demi finally rang and she was screaming over the phone and I was trying to calm her down and I can, I can just remember Demi screaming, absolutely screaming. And then when I finally calmed her down, I said, Demi, I don't know how to get on to the boys. I don't know what I'm doing. And she said, leave it with me. And then Jay finally rang and he said that he'd get on to Brett. And it was all very confusing. And in the meantime, the policewoman is following me around, not leaving me alone. And Jay finally rang. Then Brett, you rang. And I will never, ever, ever forget. You're broken. Your broken voice on that phone. Jay was more angry. Demi was screaming. But you, you could not speak. 
you were absolutely sobbing and you're absolutely broken that your grandparents were gone. I'll never ever forget that. I was in Phoenix in Arizona on an internship at the World Athletic Centre and I woke up to my alarm and had so many missed calls and messages from you and Jay and Demi and I knew instantly that something was wrong and the first person that I got onto was Jay and he sat me down. He said, are you you sitting down? I said, just tell me what the hell's going on and he told me the news and I didn't believe it. I just said, are you sure? Is it? It can't be true. Are you sure? And then it hit me and, and I was broken and then I spoke to you as soon as I can and the reason I was broken is because they're two of the most influential and inspirational human beings in my life and to know that they had been tragically stripped from our lives instantly it didn't make sense it wasn't fair and it broke all of us it did and you're right it just did not make sense and it just did not seem right that it was was happening to our family it was something that you saw on the news something you saw in a movie and here it was an actual tragic event in our family. You said that when the policewoman at the door said to you, it's your parents, your immediate response was, what's my brother done? Yes. What was he like in his life and why did we know, why did you know that he'd done something? Because he was very violent towards my mother and verbally violent towards my father, to Brumar and Grinda. As the years went on, he... Well, he was a narcissist. He was so nasty and cruel and selfish and demanding to mum and dad. He would take, take, take from them and abuse them and call them names. There were times when he actually physically abused mum. And I've seen her with black eyes and bruises. And I just knew one day that something really, really bad was going to happen. And even though on the night we were shocked to get this news but not surprised because his violence got worse each time and there were times when he talked about killing mum and dad. He didn't really hide that fact and you could speak all day about the horrible things that he's done over time and you mentioned the abuse to to Bruma, your mum and my grandmother and I actually I saw him punch her in the face one day and then he attacked you and at the age of 15 or 16 my brother and I had to defend our mum and our grandmother from this beast of a human. You did. I remember that night. And there's so many examples of these terrible incidences that he's done over time and and so many people around Cobar know of him in that way and I guess it's it's hard for people to understand but he was he was living with our with Brumar and Grindar for a lot of years and it's hard for people to understand why they actually accepted him and maintained that care for him and I think it didn't become clear to me until one year I called them up and said said to Bruma that he's not welcome at our family Christmas and she broke down on the phone and said to me Brett if his own mother can't love him then who can I'm a failure I've failed how have I failed and that that made me realize that she was living in fear of feeling like his actions were her responsibility still this late in life and that was very very hurtful because we all knew that he didn't actually deserve the care that was given to him from his parents and and in the end it was their own love that got them killed that's right and i remember when all this happened jay actually said to me they died protecting the rest of us and they loved him so much their love 
and then their death at the end it's actually protected their whole family and that's the sort of people they were they would put themselves first before everybody else let's talk a little bit about the events that have unfolded since the 3rd of december 2014 the very consuming events but first of all before we get into that the funeral in cobar there was over 2000 people almost half of cobar's population was at their funeral yes there was we held it at the Cobar Memorial Swimming Pool. I think that goes to show how much of a massive impact they were on the community. Yes, it does. And it wasn't just the Cobar community. Buses came up from Dubbo. There were swimmers from the swimming club from Gosford. And there were people that travelled from Caloundra and all over the place. They were widely known and widely respected. Very much so. It's. I mean, there's so many tough times, but one of the toughest moments in my life is undoubtedly carrying Grindar's coffin on that day. I can only imagine, Brett. Had a speech written to say at the funeral and I remember a good mentor of mine, Jacko, came to me the morning on the morning of the funeral and he said, I know you're going to say some words and I just want to say to you, just, just stay strong and think of your grandparents. And I didn't cry until after I had said that speech because I wanted, I wanted to give them my last words at the funeral and... And I was able to stay strong enough to not cry before that, to hold myself together. And then as soon as I walked down from saying those words, I just broke again. And it was such a tough emotional time. And then, like I said, carrying that coffin was the worst experience and feeling that I've ever had. I can relate to that. While I didn't carry the coffins, when a coffin went down each side of that pool, Dad's went down the side of his lap lane. And mum went down the other side, which was the springboard side. And I remember there was a pause where we had to stop while the Cobar Swimming Club and the Ningen Swimming Club dived in and did that last lap for Sets and Marg. And I looked across and here was my two boys and my nephews and my daughter out in front with one of mum and dad's dogs. And as the swimmers dived into the pool, I think it was you, Brett, you copped a wave of that from the water. And I, then I looked down in front of me and here's mum's coffin with her brothers and nephew, cousins and a very special friend. And I thought, this is bizarre. This is not right. This two coffins at a funeral is not right. And mum and dad had a lot of living to do. And the whole length of that pool, I just looked over at you and Jay and Demi and I sobbed and I shook because I knew that that must have been tough for you kids, carrying your grandfather down the side of that pool. Unbelievably tough. And like a lot of the situations that have happened since then also, I mean, that's the first time I've actually spoken about that that feeling in the back at the pool and I mean so much has unfolded since then too that you think it's such an unfair tragic circumstance that you don't think about it at that time about the court processes that are to follow and and for this to sort of be resolved but immediately following the the incident the police conducted interviews and they interviewed over 300 people because they wanted to build a case against your brother. Yes. They interviewed you, 
How many hours do you think you spend in that courtroom over the first few days or weeks? The interview room? Yeah. Sorry, the interview room, not the courtroom. I lost track after 14 and a half. I was counting them on my fingers for a while. <laughs> and after a few days, I lost track after 14 and a half. And I actually thought, why am I even counting this? And that was... For a few, that was the first few days. Fourteen and a half hours in that room in the first few days when yes. when we're trying to grieve as a family and and get through this. It was hard, and I can remember begging them at one stage if we as a family could have time out to organise a funeral. I said we've got a funeral to organise and you guys won't leave us alone. I remember up begging them to leave us alone to organise a funeral. And then court finally started in. Burke, a long period later, how many trips to Burke did you do for the smaller hearings? Well, the first one, well, he was originally taken to Burke in the December where bail was denied and the charges of two so counts. So 12 months later? No, no, oh, two sorry, days later. Yes. Yeah. yeah, so that originally happens because Burke is a lock-up, whereas Cobar's not. He was originally taken to Burke. Bail was refused and they laid the charges of two counts of murder and several firearm charges. It was February 2015 that the first mention was on in Burke. And then after that, it was approximately every six to eight weeks there would be a mention in Burke. Burke, by the way, for a lot of people that don't understand the geographics of Western New South Wales and Australia, is 160 kilometres from Cobar. Yes, which was the nearest district court. And quite often these mentions, they could be 10 minutes, they could be 20 minutes, but you might sit around for quite a while waiting for that 10 or 20 minutes time in the courtroom. And that happened over and over and again until they finally decided to take it to... A trial. A trial in Dubbo. How long after the 3rd of December 2014 was it that we were in the trial at Dubbo? Before that, the judge in Burke decided to move it to Sydney. He wanted to get it to Supreme Court level in the hope that my brother would put in a plea because you can't actually put in a plea at the lower court levels. So he moved it to Sydney, the Supreme Court in Sydney, and in we went. And the judge in that Supreme Court said, how do you plea, Mr Setri? And he, although we all expected it, he gutted us when he said, not guilty, Your Honour. And that's when it was moved to a trial and they moved it to Dubbo. It was still Supreme Court level, but they moved it to Dubbo to begin in July 2016. And so he, he at that time has said not guilty, but from the very beginning, I think it's important that we let everyone know, he's actually never denied it. He admitted to it from the beginning. He told the accounts of what he did, why he did it from the beginning, and he's shown absolutely no remorse. And in actual fact, it's been the opposite, where he... Uh, has expressed a feeling of freedom. Yeah, freedom and relief were his words. He was relieved when he did it, and now he's free. And his words are, even though I'm inside myself, I feel so free. Which is sickening. Absolutely. So we get to Dubbo Court. He's pleaded not guilty of murder, and I think we'll just sort of sum it up a little bit, but essentially what they've told us in that court process is that the reason for not guilty is due to mental illness? Yes, that's right. He was actually diagnosed with schizophrenia. Paranoid schizophrenia. Paranoid schizophrenia, which when I learnt more about it and listened to the psychiatrists in court 
and have since read the psychiatrist's reports, which are quite in-depth, it did not surprise me one bit. It made sense uh, with all the years of what we copped on the receiving end from him. It all made sense. I... I'm very intrigued with the human mind and do a lot of work around that as a coach and a life coach and and practice it myself. And that was very intriguing for me to sit in that courtroom in Dubbo that day and hear very highly sought after psychiatrists talk about their findings and diagnosis around paranoid schizophrenia and the relationship to a lifetime of grandeur delusions and a lot of the things that we sort of briefly spoke about just before and a lot of his life that we know about these grand dual delusions, it, it, all, it all made sense. But when they talk about it in a physiological aspect of the, the brain and why they came to those conclusions, it was very intriguing. It was. And I remember also at the end of that court case, you said to me, how do you think Brimmer and Grindar would feel knowing this? And I said they would be relieved because they would now have an answer. Because for years, they just didn't understand what was going on with their boy when they were trying to help him. And we do not deny the fact that he is mentally ill. And I could not argue the fact of paranoid schizophrenia. I think they did an amazing job there and they've diagnosed him correctly. And they're obviously the experts and and we all agree with that. But the problem with that is that He's pleaded not guilty to murder due to mental illness. The judge has ruled him not guilty to murder due to mental illness. And we're together right now in Sydney in your hotel room because you're here from Cobar again for another court case and uh, some emotional events unfolded yesterday. But in a nutshell, can you sum up to the listeners what what the results have sort of been and why you're now fighting for many different things, including a change in the law. The outcome of not guilty to murder by reason of mental illness means there is no, while there's a conviction, there is no criminal record. It also means that his time in prison is indefinite. So we're not guaranteed a time. It could be a long time. We hope it's a long time. It also means... Because of the not guilty verdict and he being a beneficiary on his parents' will, Scott and I were 50-50 beneficiaries on mum and dad's wills, he is entitled to half of their estate. Even though he has killed them he admitted. and admitted to killing them, he actually felt completed a formal statement saying that he had admitted to killing them and his intention was to kill them. That is a very formal and very important document within the courts of law, he's still entitled to half of their estate. So under Section 11 of the Forfeiture Rule, I have put an application into the courts to have him removed as beneficiary of both mum and dad's wills. You have six months to do this from the day of sentencing, which was the 4th of August 2016. So from the time of mum and dad's murders, to the trial and then after the trial I think I had four weeks reprieve so in all for 18 months it was constant daily weekly monthly and trips off to court and everything interviews the constant pressure then we went to trial so that was very constant I gave myself four weeks to pull myself together to relax to take a bit of 
bit of a breath and get over the trial and then I had to start on the next leg of the journey and that was to take my brother to court to have him forfeiture his rights as beneficiary to mum and dad's wills and that began the application went in February and we've been to court a few times this year. Yeah, the time of this recording, it's now June 2017 and uh, there's obviously a lot of things that we still can't speak about but I do want people to understand what it's two and a half years now since he murdered your parents and you have your daily life changed in Cobar for obvious reasons you went from seeing them every day working with them your daily life changed you were lumped with sorting out so much and in in charge of their estate you have single-handedly kept their business alive and not just alive but thriving you've had to because of this this fight and him being on the wheel, you haven't been able to sort out a lot of things. So the house is still sitting there. And when we go back to town, it's still set up like Brumar and Grindar are living there because you legally haven't been allowed to do anything. That's exactly right. It's, yeah, you can walk into that home and it's like they still live there. Nothing's changed. And we still maintain the gardens and look after the place. But as far as the business goes, there was two things that allowed that to keep running. Otherwise, the doors would have been closed there too. One is I was a signatory to one of the bank accounts that that business operated from. So therefore, it could keep going. And the other is in the will, they stated that they wanted the executor or executors to maintain the business at their at their best discretion which was either to sell or keep running. And in the case of this, because it was an ongoing case, I kept it running because I didn't have a legal right to sell it. And it's been difficult for seven weeks. I struggled walking in the doors of that place. I'd no longer get in there and I'd have to walk out. But when the time finally came that I could walk in those doors and stay in there and keep that business running, that's what I've continued to do for the last two years, a bit over two years. Like I said, your daily life's changed and when all this happened, us kids and dad sort of got together and spoke about that whatever you needed would happen, would be there at the drop of a hat because because of your daily life changing. And as close as us kids were to Brumar and Grindar and our relationships and our respect and love, it was your everyday being that was changing. And... I mean, I've done a lot of trips out to Cobar to be with you, but Dad's been the real rock behind you and he's helped you with so much of, of everything because because of this massive change and impact in your life. But I want to say, Mum, that I'm unbelievably proud of the strength you have built through this horrific journey and I'm excited to see the impact that you'll make when this case has finally been settled because... You now have a passion and a drive to make a change, not for us and your family, but for a wider audience. Can you tell people about your your passion in this area and your drive, where you're heading? Well, firstly, domestic violence is the big thing. I remember back in 2014 saying to you and Jay and Demi, we've become statistics in domestic violence and you kids gave me quite a blank look until I explained to you that we have endured domestic violence for a number of years and we enabled my brother to get away with this domestic violence. So I want to point out to people 
the domestic violence side of it and do not enable it and to speak up and to do not let it happen to your family. And secondly, I have started a petition which I'm going to present to the Attorney-General. It's actually addressed to the Attorney-General of three changes I'd like to see made. One is I'd like to see not guilty by reason of mental illness change to guilty. Guilty of murder by reason of mental illness. Because I do not deny the fact of mental illness if mental illness is diagnosed. But I do strongly believe that it can be used as an excuse. And when you kill someone and cold-bloodedly kill someone, and more than one in my case, I don't care what anyone says, it's still murder. And I think they should be still faced with the responsibility of the charges to murder. So change it to guilty of murder by reason of mental illness. Secondly, I think a criminal record should be recorded because without a criminal record recorded, if the murderer ever gets out, and in my case my brother, they can get amongst society and have no criminal record. And it's just bizarre that you can get a criminal record from a driving offence, a speeding offence, a drug offence, a robbery offence, stealing, break and enter, and yet you can murder two people and never be convicted of a criminal record. That's a big change that's got to be made. And out of this, I'd also like to see when a case like this is in trial and a conviction is made at the end of the trial and perhaps at the same time, in my case, where my brother signed a statement saying that he admits to killing my parents and his intentions were to kill my parents, he should be made sign a document forfeiting his rights as a beneficiary to their wills. I do not think it's okay to say it's okay to kill to inherit. And they're the changes I'm going to push so hard and hopefully make a change. It absolutely blew my mind when we learned that this is the case, that he is actually entitled to anything that they owned, which is actually the least of the reasons for the fight. It's the fact that you elaborated on there about the, he doesn't have a criminal record. And he can, and it sounds like, possibly get released from prison. And because he's not guilty, he won't have that criminal record. <clears throat> That's right. And I have no doubt in my mind he's capable of killing again after listening to his statement and reading more about him and the psychiatrist reports. So it's quite scary that someone like my brother, and there's hundreds of them in there with the same conviction can get out one day and be amongst society. They could be working with you, living next door to you, dating your daughter, dating your son, and they're actually murderers without a criminal record. How do you feel about the fact that it's been talked about that he might get released from prison? It scares me, but at the same time, I'm not going to let it control my daily life. I do not let it control. Those thoughts do not control my daily life. But it does come to mind from time to time. And my brother is assessed every six months as he, because he is what they call a forensic patient. So the mental health tribunal assesses him every six months. So it's around about that six-month period where it where refreshes in my mind that there's a possibility that he will get out one day. And it's quite scary. It's very scary for you, for us family, for society in general. It's it's crazy and it's scary. 
I love that you just mentioned there that whilst you're scared, you're not letting it rule your daily life because you have to get on with life. And and like I said, I, I'm unbelievably proud of seeing your growth and your strength over the past two and a half years. And you and I, like we started this chat, we have a very close relationship and we always have. But especially in the sort of past six to 12 months where we've been having a lot of different chats and I've, I've done a lot of work myself in with psychologists and life coaches and spiritual mentors and things like that and and you're starting to ask me some great questions where I'm filtering some information to you and it makes me really proud to see you shifting in that direction to use those and in hearing you talk yesterday about using tools such as uh, your happy place and then anchoring your mindset and creating the emotions and the feelings that you want to experience not the ones that would overrule you if you let them those emotions and feelings of pain and hatred and anger the ones that don't actually help us be strong and and don't help you be that amazing role model that you that you are already and that you will continue to grow into into what will become a role model for undoubtedly tens of thousands of people and women around the country and the mindset of how to overcome adversity is something that I speak about a lot and I present to people and and I'm around it a lot and I've been through it and I've I've learned how to use this adversity to my advantage in a sense and as people know and as you know enhancing and optimizing Brumar and Grindar's legacy is a big part of why this podcast has actually come about but I wanted to ask you how you feel about using the adversity to grow strength and to an advantage and how you feel about something like what I'm doing in that regard. How do I feel? Well, Brett, I'll just take you back a little step. People say to me out on the streets of Cobar and in my workplace, you are so strong, Wendy. I don't know how you're so strong. And I say to them, well, really, you've got two choices. Curl up into a ball and be totally miserable and not live your life. Or you can stand up and stand tall and be strong and live your life. And that is the choice I've taken, I guess, too, because that's how I've been raised. Mum and Dad always stepped forward, not backwards. They always used different periods of their lives as a learning curve. And losing Mum and Dad and learning what I am learning about the law and even coping with my own emotions... I feel that I need to help others get through this. I suddenly realised one day, soon after this, soon after I lost mum and dad, I'm not the only one going through this. My family's not the only one going through this. There's actually thousands of us and this should not be happening. These laws should not be happening. We should, Our victims should not be treated like this. We have to stand up and we have to make some change. And if I can help one other family and hopefully a lot more, I feel that I've helped succeed in making a, a change and to help people get not have to endure what I've had to go through. Well, that's right. I think it's you're fighting for this law to be changed, which is to change laws is a massive, massive task. Absolutely. And you're not doing it. If this law changes, it doesn't change our case at all. It there's, doesn't. There's, we know that there's absolutely no possibility of that and you're not fighting for that. No. And I'm not. But if we can have a change made to help someone else or other families down the track, that's what all about. That's what changes are all about. It's not going to make one iota of difference 
to my situation, but hopefully it will make a lot of difference to other situations down the track. And I think I know you're aware of the tough task ahead because, you know, you and I have been to some meetings here in Parliament together. We have. And in the Attorney General's office together to express what actually, what it's like from a victim side of things because these people read laws or make laws in black and white without actually knowing the impact in families' lives. And after one, a couple of those meetings in Parliament in the Attorney General's office one day, he said to me, what, how did you feel that that went? What, what, do you, what do you feel? And I said, I actually feel like it's the beginning of a snowball effect that will possibly take about 10 years to happen. That's right, Brett. It won't happen overnight and it's going to be a long road to make a change. But I feel being persistent and being positive, that one or two of those changes may come into effect. And it's disappointing to think that regardless of whether it took a year or 10 years, that there's, there is so many families. The reality is this is going to happen. Like you said, there's already thousands of people in your yes. in our situation. Yeah. There's going to be more. That's the, the That's harsh, right. disappointing reality. And then the law makes it that these people have to deal with these hardships that you've had to deal with over the last two and a half years because of this law. And since my story came out in the Telegraph of these changes that I want to see happen and that I intend on fighting for, I've actually had three different victims reach out to me for help. And they have come from all over Australia, not only New South Wales, those three victims. I mean, it's a New South Wales law that I'm fighting you know, it was heartbreaking. But I was at the same time, I was quite proud that people contacted me through that story to share with me their story, their long, hard journey, the brick walls that they've had to face in their case. And But at the same time, they were saying to me, you know, we need help. We need this to change. People shouldn't be going through this. And you to be on the receiving end of that, like you said, you, you're glad that people have reached out to you and it's sad to see, but an inspiration and a role model to you with someone who, is, who has made a big impact, who has made change after a big tragedy is Rosie Batty. Yes. Now, she's one amazing lady. <laughs> yes. I absolutely admire that woman. She, well, unbeknownst to Rosie, her very first media interview out on the street in front of her home just opened up the doors to her voice being heard in public. And just for those people listening, Rosie Batty suffered uh, massive adversity when her son, Luke, was murdered by her husband uh, at, at his cricket training. Yeah, it wasn't actually a husband. Sorry, former partner? Yes. Yeah, sorry, former partner uh, at, at the, the son's cricket training. And she spoke out the following day and has been an amazing role model and inspiration around domestic violence and I believe has actually successfully had some laws changed by being this strong, persistent woman. Yes, she has. Reading her book, she's had a few laws changed. She's also had a few, how do I put it? There was funding going to be cut in the domestic violence department and with Rosie speaking up and stepping forward, she actually got the funding increased for more help to be there for women and children. She's also, in her speaking, she has educated, would you believe, the police department on coming when they get that phone call. She's worked with the police 
police department very, very closely down in Victoria so that they now understand when they get that phone call that a male or a female or a child needs help, they must come running. And so it's empowering for you to see a woman who has suffered in that way to gain the strength and the courage to move forward in her journey with the pride to help other people. I love to see that you have an inspirational role model, that you're not just sort of going out on a limb on your own and hoping for the best. You do have that that role model ahead of you that has shown that, you know what, change is possible. It's going to take a lot of pain. It's going to take a lot of work, but it's possible. Yes, and it is possible. Nothing is impossible. And I think if you've got a role model to look upon, look up to, it's no different to a little boy looking at his legendary footballer on the football field that is man of the match each week and never misses a goal when he kicks a goal and he scores 45 tries in the season. That little boy is inspired by that player to give it his all in that game of football. Well, in my eyes, someone like Rosie Batty inspires me to give it that all in getting the message out there and to try and have changes made with these laws of not guilty by reason of mental illness, a criminal record tacked onto that and the fact that they should not inherit the estate of the people they have killed. Yeah, so Rosie Batty, I guess, is my inspiration and my strength to keep fighting for the changes I want made through my own experience. And that experience is tragic as it is. My parents were murdered by my brother and I'm going to walk tall and be heard and hopefully have some changes made in the law. There's that pride and that strength shining through and we could talk for hours and unfortunately we do have more of this journey ahead where there's still more court cases to go and nothing has uh, been settled yet. And, you know, the pain continues, but so does the strength and the pride and the resilience. And mum, everyone that I interview on the podcast receives a gift because I believe that giving is living. And as you alluded to at the beginning of this chat, I wasn't aware that Bruma used to say to you that uh, about give and you shall receive. So I guess through osmosis and through <laughs> that, that I, uh, that I have gained that from them. And... I usually give a life tea and you're very aware of the life teas and you yes. have all the life teas. and I, you have, I the, have the full collection. The full collection. Yes. So it wouldn't feel right <laughs> to give you that. You've got floss bands. You use the floss bands. So it didn't feel right to give you that. But what I have done for you is I've got this uh, lovely picture here that's actually been printed onto a canvas oh. and been delivered to your place in Cobar. Thanks, Brett. And this is a photo of... Your three kids, so myself and Jay and Demi with Brumar and Grindar at their 53rd wedding anniversary. 50th. Oh, sorry, 50th wedding anniversary. And yeah, I've had that printed onto a big canvas for you and sent to Cobar for, so it might be there when you arrive home tomorrow. Oh, and it's, I have to say, it's my very favourite photo of my children with mum and dad. It's an absolutely beautiful photo. It's actually my screensaver on the computer now and for Brett to present that to me that it's going to be delivered to Cobar on canvas, it's just beautiful. I'm so grateful. It's very, very special. It'll be taking pride of place in my home. Mum, 
I wasn't going to do the fast five questions with you, but I feel like uh, I want to ask them to you and I feel like uh, it might just lighten the mood a little bit to finish off. So these are questions that I ask to every single guest and I'm honored to have you as a guest on the podcast. So the idea is there's five questions and you don't have to take time to think about it. I'll just ask them and you answer them, whatever rolls off your tongue. Okay with that? Okay, let's see how I go. <laughs> What's one habit you wish you could change? Biting my lip. <laughs> You bit your lip when you just before you said that. <laughs> okay, what makes you feel absolutely pumped and exhilarated and energized? A good bottle of red. Oh, <laughs> you weren't expecting that. No, were you? I wasn't. No, actually. I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm just joking. My three children. Ah, that's better yeah. than a good. And bottle either of red. either one or three of them can land on my doorstep or give me a call or send me a text message, and it pumps me for the rest of the day. Have you ever washed a dog? But you know darn well I have washed a dog because (laughs) we've always had a dog and we've had this discussion and I've had to wash the dogs. Yeah, I've been witness to you washing many dogs. And you, yes, you're and the I, reason I, why I've washed many dogs, actually. Yes, because you had your little Ellie and you had you, you're, you were responsible for your little Ellie. <laughs> <laughs> What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Uh, it's interesting you should say that because this is the first thing that came to my mind. Mum used to have this saying which actually stemmed from my great-grandmother. Always make sure you kiss the one you love good night because you never know what tomorrow will bring and that always sticks in my mind and what are you most grateful for in your life right now i'm most grateful firstly to be alive for my three beautiful children they have you kids have given me a lot of strength to keep going through this and i am so grateful and i'm sure that one day will be added to mum what are you most grateful for right now and i'll say my six beautiful grandchildren <laughs> Pressure's on. <laughs> <laughs> now, whether they're all from you or not, Brett, I don't know. Well, I do jokingly say that your I'll have six kids. Your brother and your sister might have a few. That's not plan. Yeah, yeah there, there you go. Pressure's on, uh, yeah. Jay and Demi. <laughs> ask me that same question in 10 years' time and I'll give you another answer. <laughs> <laughs> Mum, Wendy Robbo from Cobar, you are a legend. You're an amazing tower of strength and an inspiration to the world. I'm extremely proud of you. Jay and Demi and Dad are extremely proud of you. And I know that your parents, Brumar and Grindar, are extremely proud of you. Thank you, Bert. And I'm extremely proud of all of you. Yeah, And I miss Mum and Dad constantly every day. They're in my heart every day. We all do. I love you. Love and you. And I love Jay and Demi. Love you, Mum. Love you too. There she is, guys. My inspirational role model of a mother. I hope with us sharing this little bit of the story that it gives you some light and strength to help you through whatever challenges you have faced or are currently facing. Remember, you can help mum by signing the petition at change.org. You can also help us by reaching out to me and letting me know if you'd like to hear more. We understand that there's generally an interest in the world around these topics. And we also care to not let other victims be dragged through what we've endured. So reach out on social media or email me directly from the website and let us know what you think. Yourlifeofimpact.com Mum is also now legally allowed to speak out again and is doing the keynotes on domestic violence and running hard at her purpose to make significant change and impact. So if you'd like to get in touch with Mum about this... 
You can also do that through my website or social media, social media channels and I can put you in touch with mum. So remember that's yourlifeofimpact.com for the website and the email links. Thanks again, legends. This one was deep. It was tough. It was hard for me, but I'm so proud and so honored to get it out there. If you know someone who'd be interested in this episode, please share it around and help mum with her mission to be the change that she wants to see in the world. And as always, remember, this is your life journey, your life of impact.